Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Uh, Before I get started, I want to give a very special thank you to my newest patron, Kevin Walker. Kevin Walker signed up for the Super 6 tier. Uh, The Super 6 tier on Patreon, on my Patreon page, is $20. And that $20 was enough for me to be able to uh, get John Walton's Genesis 1 as Ancient Cosmology, which is one of the books I want to study in preparation for my own creation and evolution book, which I hope to have out uh, by next year. And if you go to patreon.com slash cerebralfaith and join the Super 6 tier, like Kevin, you'll get early access to all of these podcast episodes. You'll get every book I've ever written in Kindle format. You'll be given shout-outs on the podcast. And you'll be given priority over non-patrons in the blog's Q&A session when you send an email to me at cerebralfaith at gmail.com, and I respond to one of your uh, questions that you send in to me. Now, today, I'm go- I also want to give a shout-out to Jordan Apodaca, David Parrish, and Kevin Whitaker, who are also patrons. You guys are awesome. And the money you give is very important because it helps to fund research for me to put out better, more informed, more scholarly and good quality material, both on the blog, cerebralfaith.blogspot.com, and on this podcast. Now, today I'm going to be responding to a video by a YouTuber called Rationality Rules. Uh, Rationality Rules is a very famous, very popular atheist YouTuber, but I only knew that he existed recently. (laughs) <laughs> and it's really it's really funny because that's really the way it is. I'm always the last guy to know about these things. I'm I'm always the la- I'm I'm always the last to do- these these guys are popular and they gain popularity and I don't just <laughs> like they have thousands of followers before I even know that they even exist. I don't know why that is. It 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 just is. I don't know why that's the case. I don't know why I'm always the last guy to know, but it just I guess it maybe because I spend more time looking at what uh, atheists and other non-Christians have to say in the blogosphere rather than YouTube. I don't really spend I mean um, I watch inspiring philosophies videos, but I don't really when I when I go to YouTube, it's mostly to just look at funny cat videos and fail army stuff and sniper wolf reaction videos reaction times uh, and or, or how to videos video game walkthroughs that the, those that's most of the stuff i use youtube for listening to music videos and things like that video game video walkthroughs things like that i don't usually go i used to but i don't i don't go to youtube for my theology philosophy apologetics stuff very much anymore. And maybe I should, because YouTube is a very popular format, and a lot of people go to YouTube to um, to watch things like Rationality Rules and Inspiring Philosophy. Inspiring Philosophy is a Christian YouTube channel, by the way, Christian Apologetics. If you haven't subscribed, if you haven't checked out his videos, you should. They are excellent. Uh, but today I'm going to be responding to Rationality Rules. Uh, the video he made is called The Kalam Cosmological Argument Debunked, First Cause Argument Refuted. Um, and I will include a link to the video in the show notes. I wrote a blog post on this recently, but I decided that I should probably make a podcast episode responding to it as well because um, a lot of people, especially in the younger generation, they don't like to read, and so they like to watch YouTube videos, and they like to listen to podcasts, and I started the podcast for the 
for those people who don't like to read. I started the podcast to supplement the blog and, and get this material out there for people who they they would listen to a 30 minute or 50 minute podcast but they may not they may not read a a blog post that's 3 pages long. And so I am making this podcast episode to supplement the blog post. So, let's begin. Um if you haven't listened if you haven't been following this podcast since the very beginning then uh, you should probably get reacquainted with the Kalam cosmological argument. The Kalam cosmological argument is an argument for a cre- for the creator of the universe using the law of causality and the evidence for the universe's origin. And it is a three-step syllogism. It goes like this. One, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore, the universe has a cause. This is a logically valid syllogism. The conclusion follows from the premises by the rules of, of modus ponen. Therefore, in order for the argument to be sound, the premises must be true. And we must have good reasons to believe that the premises are true. In order to refute any argument, you have to do one of, or, of two things. You either have to show that the logic is invalid, that is to say, even if you were to grant all of the premises, the conclusion still wouldn't follow, or if the argument is logically valid, if it follows one of the rules of inference, like modus ponens, modus tollens, hypothetical syllogism, etc., then you have to show that at least one of the premises is false. All you need to do to refute an argument is just to knock down one premise. You don't have to knock down all of them. If you just show one is false, then you've shown that the argument is not a good argument, because you need all of the premises in an argument to be true to reach the conclusion. So, that's what that's what Rationality Rules is trying to do here, is trying to show that the argument is not good. So, let's go ahead and look at what he has to say into the thick of it. The first point to be raised, in my opinion, is that even if we accept the Kalam cosmological argument in its entirety, all it would prove is that there was a cause of the universe, and that's it. It doesn't even suggest, let alone prove, that this cause was a being. And it certainly doesn't suggest that this cause was a being that is eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, omnibenevolent, personal and moral. That is one hell of a leap. Hence, even if accepted, the argument doesn't remotely support theism. A second... And that is the end of his first objection. Now, you see, what his objection is, is that even if the argument went through, even if all of the, even if both premises are true and the conclusion follows, what he says is that all it, all it proves is that the universe had a cause, and that's it. Uh, it wouldn't suggest that it was a being, and certainly not one that was eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, personal, and moral. He says it's one, it, he says, and I quote, one hell of a leap. And so, if it's, even if it's accepted, it doesn't even remotely support theism. I, I really couldn't, when I first listened, when I first watched this video, I really couldn't believe what I was hearing. I mean... Has rationality rules even paid the slightest bit attention to apologists' defenses of the Kalam cosmological argument? His objection here is patently false. Now, given that everything that begins to exist has a cause, and the universe does have a beginning, the Big Bang cosmology, the second law of thermodynamics, and Two arguments against actual infinites establish that the universe came into being out of nothing a finite time ago. This is a scientifically established fact. Given that those two premises are true, it follows that a cause transcendent to matter, energy, space, and time must have, uh, must have caused matter, energy, space, and time, i.e. the universe, to come into existence. Now, granted, the syllogism proper doesn't define this cause as God. It only asserts, therefore, the universe has a cause. However, in every defense of the Kalam cosmological argument I've ever heard, 
this is not where the argument stops. Once it is established that the universe has a transcendent cause, the apologist, whether it's William Lane Craig, Frank Turek, Lee Strobel, Hugh Ross, J. Warner Wallace, or myself, we do a conceptual analysis of what it means to be a cause of the universe. It is the conceptual analysis part of the argument that is being totally ignored by rationality rules. When you do a conceptual analysis of what attributes or properties that the universe's cause must have, you do indeed end up with a being heavily resembling God. Now, what cause of what properties must the cause of the universe have? The cause must be spaceless. Why? Because space came into being at the Big Bang and did not exist until this cause brought space into existence. Because Spatial dimensions did not exist until the cause brought spatial dimensions into being. It cannot be within spatial dimensions. Therefore, it must be spaceless or non-spatial. You cannot be inside of something if you are that something's cause. You cannot be inside of something if that particular something did not exist until you brought it into existence. A builder of the house cannot be inside of the house prior to bringing the house into existence. The builder of a car cannot be inside of the car until until he has brought the car into existence. He's got to be transcendent to the car. The builder of the house has to be transcendent to the house. So since there was no space until the Big Bang, the Big Bang was the beginning of space, then what caused the Big Bang, the Big Banger, must be spaceless, non-spatial. The cause must also be timeless. Why? Because time did not begin until the Big Bang. Because time did not begin until the Big Bang, the cause cannot be inside of time. It must be a timeless being. The cause must be immaterial. Why? Because this is, a, this is an entailment of the cause's non-spatiality. Because material objects cannot exist unless space exists, I mean, material objects have mass, they're composed of atoms and molecules, they occupy spatial dimensions, if there is no space, matter cannot exist. So if matter cannot exist, if space does not exist, and space did not exist until the Big Bang happened, this means that the cause must be uh, non-spatial, and because it's non-spatial, it must be non-material. The cause must be unimaginably powerful, if not omnipotent. Why? Well, anything able to create all matter, energy, space, and time out of absolutely nothing must be extremely powerful, if not omnipotent. The cause must be supernatural. Why? Because nature and the universe are synonyms. Nature did not begin to exist until the Big Bang. Therefore, a natural cause, which is, by definition, a cause emanating from nature, causes taking place within the natural realm, cannot be responsible for the origin of nature. You cannot have causes that, by definition, occur within the natural realm being the cause of the origin of the natural realm. To say otherwise would be to spout incoherence. You would basically be saying that nature caused nature to come into being. It must be uncaused. Why? Because we've already established that the cause is timeless. The cause of the universe cannot have a beginning. To have a beginning to one's existence entails a before and after relationship. There's a time before one existed, and a time after one came into existence. But a before and after of anything is impossible without time. Since the cause existed without time, the cause therefore cannot have a beginning. It's beginningless. The cause must also be personal. There are a few reasons for this. One reason is that this is an entailment of the causes in materiality. And there are two types of things recognized by philosophers that are immaterial. Abstract objects, such as numbers, sets, or other mathematical entities, or unembodied minds. 
Philosophers realize that abstract objects, if they exist, they exist as non-physical entities. However, abstract objects can't cause anything. That's part of what it means to be abstract. The number seven, for example, cannot cause any effects. Since abstract objects are causally effete, it therefore follows that an unembodied mind is the cause of the universe's beginning. Now, with, with regards to this argument for the personhood of the universe's cause, when I posted the blog post in some Facebook groups, someone commented, quote, there's so much wrong with the article, so I will focus on just one point. There is no evidence that immaterial minds have any more potency than abstract shapes or or numbers. The weight of evidence is heavily on human minds being products of brains, and therefore there is no testable confirmation that immaterial minds exist at all. Claiming otherwise, just because philosophers say so, is a very weak argument. End quote. Um, and, and this was sent to me by um, one of my Facebook friends. Um, the, he posted it in a group that I wasn't a member of, and so he... he he brought the uh, the objection to my attention in Messenger, and so I re I responded to I responded to Kevin saying, "Is that the totality of his argument? First of all, he's presupposing substance dualism is false. Of course, I'm not presupposing that it's true either. The Kalam cosmological argument is an argument for an immaterial cause beyond space and time." Of the two things philosophers know that can fall into that category, it's either abstract objects or unembodied minds. Abstract objects are causally impotent by definition. Immaterial minds are at least theoretically potent. And since the immaterial cause that bigged the bang must be one of those, it makes the most sense to say that an unembodied mind caused the universe. And I asked him, does this interlocutor have a third immaterial category that he thinks can be the cause of the universe? If so, he needs to put that on the table so we can evaluate it. And Kevin responded, third category? He doesn't think there is any immaterial category, full stop. Of course, all of, uh, he says, add, add that to the laws of logic and necessary mathematical truths. And I said, well, in that case, he either has to refute one of the premises of the Kalam cosmological argument or show how a cause that is transcendent to space and time could possibly be a material something. Otherwise, he is, he's just begging the question in favor of materialism. So, that's not, that's, that's not from Rationality Rules, but that is from another atheist who interacted with the blog post that I wrote. There are some other arguments for why the universe must be uh, a person, an, an unembodied mind, uh, but I won't get into those in this blog post. You can check them out. I've unpacked them in my book, The Case for the One True God, A Scientific, Philosophical, and Historical Case for the God of Christianity. It's available on Amazon.com in both paperback and Kindle. So, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Given that the universe began to exist, it follows that the universe has a cause, and the cause of the universe must be a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, supernatural, uncaused personal creator. This being that is that we is demonstrated to exist by the argument is consistent with the Christian God. The Bible says that God is spaceless. See 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 6, timeless. 1 Chronicles chapter 2 verse 7, 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9, Titus chapter 1 verse 2, immaterial, John chapter 4 verse 24, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 17, powerful, see Psalm chapter 62 verses 11 to 12, Job 9:14 and Matthew 19:26, uncaused, see Psalm chapter 90 verse 2, Isaiah chapter 57 verse 15, 1 Timothy 1:17 and Revelation 1:8 supernatural, and is a personal being. Moreover, the Bible credits him with being the creator of all physical reality, as we can see in the opening chapter of John's Gospel. 
Moreover, as I point out in my book, The Case for the One True God, a scientific, philosophical, and historical case for the God of Christianity, a study of comparative religions demonstrates that only four religions are consistent with the cosmological argument's conclusions. Uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, that's why Ghazali defended it, and deism. I know deism is not a religion per se, but it is a, a viewpoint about God, and that viewpoint is consistent with the Kalam's conclusion. Um, but all other religions ha involve either an eternal cosmos that have God or gods bringing order out of the eternally existing matter, energy, space, and time, or else their God is the universe itself. That's, that's a view called pantheism. So, if you're picking a view about God based on the cosmological argument alone, your list of options consistent with the evidence is limited to just four options, Christianity being among them. Only the, only the Abrahamic religions and deism teach that a God like the one I've just described brought all physical reality into existence from nothing. Now, Rationality Rules complains that the argument doesn't demonstrate the omniscience, omnipresence, or the moral character of the universe's cause. But the argument was never designed to get those qualities. Uh, Richard Dawkins made this same complaint about the Kalam cosmological argument in his book, The God Delusion. And this is how Dr. William Lane Craig responded to it. He, uh, Craig said, quote, Apart from the opening slur, this is an amazing concessionary statement. Dawkins doesn't dispute that the argument successfully proves the existence of an uncaused, beginningless, changeless, timeless, spaceless, and unimaginably powerful personal creator of the universe. He merely complains that this cause hasn't also been shown to be omnipotent, omniscient, good, creative of design, listening to prayers, forgiving sins, and reading innermost thoughts. So, what? The argument isn't intended to prove those things. It would be a bizarre form of atheism, indeed, an atheism not worthy of the name, which admitted that there exists an uncaused, beginningless, changeless, timeless, immaterial, spaceless, unimaginably powerful personal creator of the universe, who may, for all we know, also possess the properties listed by Dawkins. And rationality rules. So, we needn't call the personal creator of the universe God if Dawkins finds this unhelpful or misleading, but the point remains that such a being as described by this argument must exist. End quote. So, this is just a, a pitiful objection to the Kalam cosmological argument on the part of rationality rules. Now, I'm going to play a clip from his video in which he unpacks his second objection to the argument. The problem that arises, even if we accept the argument, is that while it would prove that the universe had a cause, it wouldn't prove that this cause itself was without a cause. Or in other words, it wouldn't prove that a first cause existed, which for a first cause argument is pretty damn ridiculous. To be fair, the proponents of this argument do indeed offer additional arguments in the attempt to assert that the cause of the universe must be without a cause. But the point I'm trying to make here and now is that the Kalam cosmological argument, by itself, is pretty damn trivial. And hence, the proponents of this argument almost always employ additional arguments to reach their conclusions, including the likes of Craig. I facepalmed at this objection. I facepalmed at this objection even harder than I did in the previous objection that I looked at. Uh, rationality rules said that that even if the argument were accepted, it wouldn't prove that the universe itself was without a cause. He says, in other words, it wouldn't prove that a first cause existed. I mean... There are, there are good reasons given. I've given these reasons in my writings, in my published writings, both on the blog and in my books. William Lane Craig has given reasons. Frank Turek, other, uh, pretty much anyone who uses the Kalam argument gives reasons as to why the universe, the, the cause of the universe must be uncaused. And in fact, in this podcast, I've already given one. 
given that the cause of the universe is timeless, the cause itself cannot itself have a beginning. To have a beginning to one's existence entails a before and an after relationship. There's a time before you were born, and a time after you were born. A time before you came into existence, and a time after you came into existence. But a before and after of anything is impossible without time. Since the cause existed without time, the cause therefore cannot have a beginning. It's beginningless. If it exists, it exists in a state of time, and it does. We, the Kalam argument just demonstrates that. It exists in a state of timelessness. And timelessness entails beginninglessness. Now, another reason that, uh, that you should believe the cause of the universe itself did not have a cause is that if you do not allow for an uncreated creator, you end up getting thrown into an infinite regress. Think about it. If you demand that God has a creator... If God made the universe, who made God? If for God to come into being, His Creator must have come into being. But before that, but before He could come into being, His Creator had to had to come into being. And before that Creator could come into being, the Creator before Him had to come into being. And before that Creator could come into being, the Creator before Him had to come into being, and so on back into infinity. No creator could ever come into being because there would always have to be a, a creator preceding him to bring him into existence. In fact, no creator in the entire infinite past series of creators could ever come into being because there would because each and every one would be preceded by a previous creator that had to come into being first. In fact, each creator would be preceded by an infinite number of creators that would have to come into being first. Therefore, no creator could ever come into being. And therefore, the specific creator that brought our universe into existence couldn't have come into being. And therefore, we wouldn't be here. But obviously, here we are. This suggests that there wasn't an infinite regression of creators begetting creators. But if there was no infinite regression of creators begetting creators, then that logically brings us to an uncreated creator, a creator without beginning. Even Rationality Rules admits that Kalam proponents back up the assertion that the cause is uncaused by arguments, as, as, you, as you heard him say in the clip that I played. However, he doesn't dispute the arguments. He doesn't say, he doesn't even tell his, his viewers what the arguments are. And he doesn't dispute them. He doesn't say that the, the, the reasons that I've given, and the reasons which are also the reasons that every other Kalam proponent gives for why the universe is uncaused, he doesn't address these. He doesn't even say what they are. He doesn't say that they're bad arguments, that they're unpersuasive. He doesn't point out any, any flaws that he thinks are, are in these arguments. He doesn't do any of that. All he... What, what he seems to be doing is that he seems to think that merely having to bolster the conclusion the universe has a cause with additional arguments is an invalid move. But why think that? Yes, the syllogism itself only gets you to the universe had a, has a cause, and we need to employ additional arguments for why the universe is uncaused and has other properties that paint a picture that looks a lot like God. But why take Christian apologists to task for doing this? Why take us to task for unpacking the implications of that conclusion with additional arguments? I just, I don't, I don't understand what the problem here is supposed to be. The question that rationality rules should be asking is not whether additional arguments are needed, but whether the additional arguments are any good. And so, rationality rules' objection is pretty damn trivial. Okay, let's move on to another objection.
Uh, and this objection is that, this third objection is that the argument commits the fallacy of equivocation. Rationality rules indicts the Kalam cosmological argument for committing the fallacy of equivocation. Now, what is that? The fallacy of equivocation is used when an argument uses the exact same word, but uses two different definitions of that word. Um, so, if someone said something like, God made everything. Everything is made in China. Therefore, God is Chinese. That would be... A, an example of the fallacy of equivocation. And the word being equivocated on here is the word everything. In the first premise, it means literally everything that exists. Stars, galaxies, planets, peoples, trees, an uh, animals, fish, birds, protons, electrons, neutrons, positrons, neutrinos, quarks, etc. Literally everything. Everything that exists. But in the second premise, it doesn't refer to that. It only refers to everything that Americans consumers per that American consumers purchase. And I certainly think that this premise is true because virtually everything I look at in my house has made in China on it. I, I mean, honestly, what do we Americans really make other than Hallmark greeting cards? We don't make a whole lot. Um, so, at rationality rules says that this argument commits that equivocation. Now, what word does he think is being equivocated on here? He thinks that the word being equivocated on is the word everything. I mean, um, universe. He says that in the second premise, what we mean by the term universe is the scientific definition of the universe, i.e. all matter, energy, space, and time. But in the conclusion, we employ the colloquial usage of the term universe. And what is the colloquial usage of the term universe? It, the colloquial, the co easy for me to say, the colloquial definition is everything that ever was, is, and ever will be. Thus, rationality rule says that steps two and three of the argument employ the same word, universe with different meanings and therefore it is fallacious it commits an informal fallacy it's like the god made everything everything is made in china therefore god is chinese argument but rationality rules is wrong in fact i, f I find this argument just as underwhelming as the previous two for one thing i i want to know why all matter, energy, space, and time is not synonymous with everything that ever was, is, or will be. Um, now, perhaps rationality rules is assuming the mother universe theory. Uh, and in this theory, the Big Bang is not the absolute origin of all physical objects, but rather only the birth of one of the many baby universes that come into being inside of a much wider mother universe. On this view, there is a, a massive mother universe that spawns little, much smaller, expanding universes in a sort of quantum vacuum. Um, and so the Big Bang, on this view, would just be the beginning of, of one of our baby universes. And in that case, the origin of our universe would not uh, would in, would not be the beginning of everything that ever was, is, or will be, because you have other things uh, outside of the universe. You have all of these other baby universes, and you have the mother universe itself. Um, and some models pose that there's an infinite number of these, and therefore you can have all sorts of improbable things come about, and you can have mul even multiple different versions of you, and science fiction writers take uh, take advantage of this by making multiple different versions of Spider-Man and Iron Man, and all these different superheroes take place in, di in different universes and all that stuff. Um... So, the Big Bang is not the beginning of the universe, according to this Mother Universe theory. So, I don't know if rationality rules is presupposing, some, is presupposing this cosmic model. But, if he is, 
then that's that's not that's not going to help him. The mother universe does not get rid of the need for a creator. It does not refute the second premise. It only pushes the problem back a notch. You see, in the mother universe, at any point, there is a non-zero probability that a baby universe will occur by a fluctuation of the energy within the quantum vacuum. And, in, and given any non-zero probability and enough time, a non-zero probability will be actualized. And on this view, the Mother Universe has existed from eternity past. It never began to exist. It, it, it is uncreated. It is uncaused. And so, it has been spawning baby universes, presumably, from an eternity past. But if that is the case, if it has from infinitely long ago, it, it, from an infinite past, been spawning baby universes, all of those baby universes would have expanded within the mother universe. They would have gotten so big and so plenteous that they all would have collided together, uh, coalesced, and formed what appears to be an infinitely large and infinitely old universe, which contradicts our observations that we live in a universe of finite size and age. So, the Mother Universe, obviously, we observe that we live in a universe of finite size and age. It began to exist, and it's not infinitely big. Now, the atheist can say, well, maybe the Mother Universe itself is expanding. If the Mother Universe is expanding, then that's going to accommodate more room for all of these babies that are coming into existence inside the, the Mother Universe. And therefore, you wouldn't have this result of all of the universes, all of the babies coalescing with one another. The problem with this is that if once you posit that the, uni, that the Mother Universe is expanding, then the board guth it falls under the board guth vilenkin theorem. What is the board guth vilenkin theorem? The board guth vilenkin theorem is a theorem for, uh, formulated by uh, Alvin Board, uh, Alan Guth, and Alexander Vilenkin. And their theorem says that any universe which has been, on average, uh, in a state of cosmic expansion must have a beginning. Any universe which has, on average, been expanding in the past must have a beginning. It, um, Alexander Vilenkin writes this on page 170 book of his uh, 176 page 176 of his book Many Worlds in One. He says, "Quote: It is said that an argument is what convinces reasonable men, and a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man." With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. End quote. So, the mother universe must have, if there is such a thing, it must have had a beginning. Now, the atheist can say, well, maybe the mother universe is itself a baby in a grandmother universe. Well, that only kicks the problem back. You have the same problems. If the grandmother universe is spawning babies from eternity past, then they would have gotten so big and so they they all would have gotten so plenteous and so big through expanding that they would have coalesced and formed what appears to be an infinitely old, infinitely large universe. And well, you could say, well, maybe the grandmother universe is expanding. Well, okay, then the board guth theorem applies to it. The, the grandmother universe must have had a beginning. And, well, what about a great-grandmother universe? Oh, well, you run into the same problems. Well, and since infinite regresses are impossible, there must have been a first universe, an absolute beginning, and... God rears his holy head again. So, 
the mother, you know, and, and there are other uh, theories that try to escape the Big Bang being the absolute beginning of everything, like like the, the whole idea that the universe is a, com- a computer simulation run by aliens. I wrote a blog post on this called, Is the Universe a Computer Simulation? And, and it runs into the same problems. It just pushes you, it, it only kicks God farther and farther upstairs. So, uh, if, if rationality rules is presupposing a sort of... Um, that the Big Bang is some sort of relative beginning, then it would not be synonymous that with everything that ever was, is, or will be. But when I, when I say the universe, and when William Lane Craig says the universe, we, what we mean in premise two and premise three is everything that ever was, is, and will be. That's what we do mean. We do mean literally Everything, everything that exists, all matter, energy, space, and time that ever was, is, or will be, in we mean this in both steps two and three. Now, all matter, energy, space, and time could be the Big Bang, it could be the beginning of our mother universe, the beginning of a great-grandmother universe, but since we are pushed to an absolute beginning at some point, premise two is affirmed, premise two, the universe you could, in fact, if it helps, if it helps rationality rules, he can replace the term universe with all physical reality. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. All physical reality began to exist. Therefore, all physical reality has a cause. So, you know, the, the, the point here is that the. Yeah, now, now, rationality rules can dispute this. He can dispute whether all physical reality has. A beginning, and he's going. He'd have to give some arguments for that. But the point is, regardless of whether or not he thinks that we are cor- that we are correct, it is certainly not the case that the fallacy of equivocation is being committed. If I mean the same thing in both premise two and in the conclusion, the universe began to exist. The universe has a cause. I'm not equivocating. I'm using the same definition when I say universe in both steps. Now, let's look at objection four. Now, I'm, I'm going, I didn't play the clip from the last time because I'm, I don't want to play his whole video. I think that might run into some fair use problems, copyright problems. You can play clips in the context of a review, and this, this counts as a review. So I just decided to just re, uh, to, to just give his objection in my own words. But now I'm going to play the clip from the video. And this brings us comfortably to another critical flaw with the Kalam cosmological argument. It asserts that something can indeed come from nothing, a concept in philosophy known as creatio ex nihilio, creation out of nothing, when this has never been demonstrated to occur. In fact, to the contrary, Everything we know about cause and effect overwhelmingly and unanimously tells us that when a new thing is created, it is due to the rearrangement of energy and matter that already existed. That is, everything is the result of creatio ex materia, creation out of material. The truth is that we have no evidence whatsoever to suggest that the universe, as defined by science, was created from absolutely nothing. And hence, the extraordinary claim that something can come from nothing requires extraordinary evidence. Uh, This is yet another underwhelming objection. Before I give my response, let me inform my readers that I distinguish causes via Aristotelian causation. The ancient philosopher Aristotle recognized that there are different types of causes. A material cause is the stuff out of which something is made. For example, a chair's material cause is the wood gathered from chopped down trees. An efficient cause of the chair would be the carpenter who fashioned the wood into a chair. Another type of cause that Aristotle identified was final causality. This is the teleology, the purpose or end goal of bringing something into being. In the example of the chair, the final cause would be the purpose of sitting. But for this discussion, only efficient and material causes need to be distinguished. Now, the objection here 
is that the inductive evidence is overwhelmingly against the idea that things can come into being without a material cause. It's ironically one of the arguments that I give for the first premise that whatever begins to exist has an efficient cause because we've ne every time we've seen something come into being, we see that it has an efficient cause. Cars have automobile manufacturers. Buildings have construction workers that brought them into being. Food has chefs that bring them the food into being, cooks them, puts uh, puts all the ingredients in and stuff like that. We never witnessed anything come into being without a cause. But he's using this argument against creation out of nothing, without a material cause. So, everything that we've ever observed come into being, it didn't just have an efficient cause, but it had a material cause as well. And this is... This is problematic because the conclusion of the Kalam cosmological argument is that the universe came into being via an efficient cause, God, but with no material cause. That is to say, God did not use previously existing material to manufacture the universe. Now, I would agree that our experience shows that, whether, that whenever something comes into being, it had a material cause as well as an efficient cause, thus rendering us with as much evidence for material causation as for efficient causation in general. But this inductive evidence can be overridden if we have powerful evidence that all of physical reality came into being out of nothing a finite time ago. And we do. The, the, the scientific evidence and the philosophical arguments both point to a creation of the universe out of nothing. Albert Einstein, in the early 1900s, presented his general theory of relativity. Einstein's equations predicted a universe that was in a state of either constant ex expansion or extraction. Einstein did not like the implications of this theory. He didn't like where this was going, so he added a, a, a constant to the theory, which later became... Uh, later, later scientists and later researchers called it a fudge factor, which would allow the universe to walk a, a, a tightrope between expansion and contraction. But this model of the universe was a, a wobbly one. If a single portion of matter traveled from one part of the universe to another, the stability would be disturbed and the universe would begin either expanding or contracting. During the 1920s, the Russian mathematician Alexander Friedman and the Belgian astronomer George Lemaitre independently made models of the universe that predicted an expansion. And sometime later, in 1929, the American astronomer Edwin Hubble discovered that the light coming from the distant galaxies appeared to be much redder than they should be. Now, what do I mean when I say that Edwin Hubble saw that the light from the distant galaxies appeared redder than they should have been? In physics, a redshift is when light or other electromagnetic radiation from an object has a wavelength that is stretched to the point that its light is shifted to the red end of the light spectrum. In fact, regardless of whether or not the light or radiation is in the visible spectrum, redder, the term redder just simply means an increase in wavelength, equivalent to a lower frequency and lower photon energy in accordance with, correspondingly, the wave and quantum theories of luminosity. The galactic redshifts are an example of the Doppler effect. The Doppler effect is a change in frequency or wavelength of either light or sound caused by the motions of the source itself to the observer of the source. Uh, let me give an illustration. Uh, let's say you're standing on the side of the road and you hear an ambulance approaching. As the ambulance gets closer and closer to you, its siren gets louder and louder. But once the ambulance passes you, the siren grows quieter and quieter. This is because as the ambulance approaches you, the sound waves grow closer and closer together. But as it moves away from you, the sound waves grow farther and farther apart. Well, Hubble noticed this same sort of stretching in the light shining from the distant galaxies. Since the light waves were being stretched, Hubble concluded that the galaxies are moving away from us. And the reason that they're moving away from us is the universe is expanding. 
This provided empirical evidence to uh, to corroborate the theoretical predictions of of Albert Einstein, Friedman, and Lemaitre. Now, this this has astounding implications. If the universe is getting bigger and bigger and bigger as it gets older and older and older, then it must have been smaller and smaller and smaller when it was younger and younger and younger. Uh, in his uh, film, The Case for a Creator, Lee Strobel gives a, a, a helpful illustration. He says to imagine watching the expansion of the universe on a film projector. And as the projector runs forward, you see the galaxies move farther and farther apart. The universe, as the projector plays and goes forward, the galaxies are moving farther and farther apart. The universe is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But let's say you stopped the film projector and then hit the rewind button. What you would see are the galaxies getting closer and closer together as the film goes back farther and farther in time. Eventually, if you just keep rewinding the film, you would see the universe get so small that it would be smaller than the point of a, of a pin. And rewind the film farther still, and the universe shrinks down to nothing. The, the universe began expanding from a point of infinite density. For about 14 billion years ago, Fred Hoyle, the uh, astronomer Fr Fred Hoyle, dubbed this the Big Bang Theory. Now, as I said, others have tried to come up with ways to get around that. Well, first they came up with the steady state model and uh, the cyclical model, but these had many problems and they fell out of favor. I don't know anyone who advocate. I don't know any scientist who advocates for these cosmological models anymore. They're just dead. They don't. They're not even discussed anymore. Now the atheists are putting all their hope in the mother universe theory. But, but as I pointed out, that has that that doesn't work. That only that only pushes God farther and farther upstairs. You do not escape an absolute beginning. So anyway, all of this is just to say that we do have powerful scientific evidence for the ex nihilo beginning of all of physical reality. The second law of thermodynamics also shows this. The universe cannot, could not have been around forever. It's using up energy the older and older it gets. Star, uh, scientists predict that in a, in a trillion trillion years, all of the stars will have exhausted their fuel, they, would have, they will have exploded, and there's not going to be any life in the universe. The universe is running down. It's running out of gas. Well, if it had been here from an infinite past eternity, it would have run out of gas an infinite amount of time ago. The universe had a beginning. So, the fact that create creation with uh, out of nothing, an efficient cause but no material cause, has not been observed is just irrelevant because the scientific evidence, not to mention the philosophical arguments, which I haven't mentioned in this podcast episode, but I talk about it in uh, episode two of the Cerebral Faith podcast. These demonstrate that the universe, and by universe I mean all of physical reality, had an absolute beginning. Now, let's move on to objection number five. Yet another defeat and flaw that the proponents of this argument commit, but not a flaw that the argument itself commits, is a special pleading fallacy. As already stated, the Kalam cosmological argument by itself only asserts that the universe had a cause. But the proponents of this argument go a step further. They assert that the cause of the universe didn't begin to exist, and therefore it didn't have a cause, without adequately justifying why this cause is an exception. In general, these proponents argue that, because cause and effect cannot occur without matter, space and time, and because matter, space and time began to exist as a result of the Big Bang, then whatever came before the Big Bang could not have had a cause. But to state it for a last time, 
The claim that matter, space and time began to exist at the Big Bang is not substantiated. To quote Sean Carroll, a cosmologist who in my opinion is remarkably articulate on this subject, the correct thing to say about the Big Bang is not that there was no time before it, but rather that our current understanding of the laws of physics give out at that moment in time. <sighs> I when I first watched the video, I really braced myself. I thought I thought I was going to encounter some really hard-hitting objections uh, that might that would make me scratch my head, and I'd really have to go for a walk and dwell on them uh, to see whether or not they had any flaws or not, or whether the argument really was debunked. But every single one I came across was not only fallacious, but just absolutely pitiful. I mean, he says, it commits the special pleading fallacy. We assert that the cause of the universe did not begin to exist and therefore didn't have a cause. And he says we don't adequately justify why this cause is an exception. Well, for one thing, in this segment, he mentioned one of the arguments that we do give to justify it, namely that the cause is timeless, and because it's timeless, because it came before all matter, energy, space, and time, it could not have a beginning. I've mentioned I've mentioned these in this podcast episode in response to some of his other ones. The only way, the only way that, in fact, in fact, the Kalam proponent would only be special pleading if he or she said that God began to exist, but made him an, an exception in saying, um, no, uh, it, it would only be special pleading if we said everything that begins to exist has a cause. Uh, God began to exist, but he's the exception. God didn't have a cause, even though God began to exist. However, no proponent of the Kalam cosmological is gonna, uh, argument is going to say that. No, we, we hold that God is uncaused, uncreated. And I've given, I've given arguments for that in this podcast episode. So the, for one thing, there's no special pleading fallacy even being made. We're not making an exception to a generally established rule. Indeed, as Neil Mahman points out in his book, Who is Agent X? Proving science and, and, proving science and logic show it's more rational to think God exists. He, th he says, everything that begins to exist must have had a cause, but anything that always existed is in need of no cause. So, it, whether you're committing, whether one is committing the special pleading fallacy, is, it depends on what category are you putting God into. Is he in the is he in the category of things that began to exist, or is he in the category of things that never began to exist but always existed? If it is the latter, and it is, then, then no special pleading fallacy is being made. And by the way, for those who don't know, special pleading fallacy occurs when, whenever you... If you didn't watch the, um, the two-part podcast series I made on logical fallacies, uh, special pleading is, is whenever you make an exception to an established rule without justification. And, and this just doesn't do that. And, and, and he asserts, without argument, that the absolute origin of the universe is not scientifically substantiated but he, i've given good arguments in this podcast and i've i've linked to articles in which i've given arguments for this in the in the blog post i wrote responding to him that yes it is scientifically established it's and it's philosophically established you you cannot have an infinite past you cannot cross there. An actually infinite th amount of things cannot exist, and you cannot cross an actually infinite number of moments in time. Okay, now final objection, and this, I, I, I knew it. I knew this was coming before I even watched the video. I knew that this one was going to be made. It is like death. Running into this objection is like running into is like death and taxes. If you use an argument for God's existence, you, any argument for God's existence, you will encounter this fallacy. And this 
this objection that he gives is the God of the gaps objection. Yep. God of the gaps. That's what he says. And he says... The propo he says, and I quote, the proponents of this argument are essentially making an argument from ignorance. What it all really comes down to is the claim that since no scientific explanation can provide a causal account for the origin of the universe, the cause must be God, a very specific God. And then he says, a God that, wouldn't you know, coincidentally is the one that the proponent believes in, end quote. Now, This objection is overused. In fact, I think it was Inspiring Philosophy who made an, a, a, a video saying that it is an abused objection. The Kalam cosmological argument is not based on what we don't know. It is based on what we do know. As I explained near the, in response to the first objection that rationality rules made, the cause of the universe must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, uncaused, and personal. And I didn't just arbitrarily assign these attributes to the universe's cause. I gave positive arguments for why the universe's cause must have these attributes. I gave positive arguments, specific reasons for why the cause must be spaceless, why the cause must be timeless, why the cause must be immaterial, why the cause must be powerful, and so on. I, nor has any uh, proponent of this argument ever said, oh, well, well okay, Ex I'll, Michael Tate of the Newsboys is an exception. <laughs> but everyone else I've heard uh, defend the Kalam argument has never said, well, scientists can't explain how the universe came into being, so it must be God. It's a miracle. <sighs> I'm, come on. Uh, one has to think that the reason that atheists continue to illegitimately accuse the Kalam, not to mention the, fine the, the cosmic fine-tuning argument, the local fine-tuning argument, and even, for Pete's sake, the moral argument of, of committing God-of-the-gaps fallacy is because they're not paying attention when the arguments are explained to them. If you keep falling in class, it's no surprise that you don't know what you're talking about when it's time to do your essay. I'm sorry, that <laughs> that's a little... That's a little frank, but I really think that most atheists just, I think they essentially, you know, fall asleep in class. <laughs> they don't pay attention to the argument. I gave positive reasons for the two premises. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe has began to exist. I gave good arguments for those in my published writings, and I've gone into a little bit of that in, in this podcast episode. And I gave positive arguments for why the cause of the universe must have the attributes of uh, spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, uncaused, and personal. Now, as for the specific God I believe in, I recommend that... I would recommend Rationality Rules, not to mention all of you out there in podcast land, get my book, The Case for the One True God. Um, now, I will admit that the Kalam does not get you to the uniquely Christian conception of God, but it does get you to a conception of God that doesn't match the majority of the ones uh, that are depicted by re uh, most religions out there. Only the Abrahamic religions and the philosophy known as deism are consistent with this argument. But polytheistic, animistic, and pantheistic religions are not. They are not consistent with this argument. Moreover, atheism certainly is not consistent with the argument's conclusion. Now, I'm going to bring this to a close. Um, I was asked to respond to this by my patron, Kevin Walker. going to give you another shout-out, Kevin Walker. You're awesome. Uh, he asked me to, to make a response to this video, and um, like I said, I was bracing myself for some pretty hard-hitting rebuttals, if not absolute refutations. I was like, oh boy, I really hope I can handle these responses. But 
as I started watching it, I'm like, what? Are you serious? I, 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 I expected them to at least be good, but they were, they were just pitiful and flimsy. Now, the reason I decided to respond to this, uh, to this YouTuber is, I mean, one, I, I was specifically asked to do it, but also, this guy has a large following. This guy, Rationality Rules, he's got, th his video that I'm responding to has gotten 82,320 views. And on his Patreon page, he makes over $2,000 per creation, per video he makes. This guy has quite a following. And so, I think that it is up to apologists in the blogosphere and the YouTube realm, in the podcast land, to interact with his material. Because a lot of people are being exposed to it, and not all of them may be as, as philosophically trained as I am to see through all of the various holes. I mean, God, I mean, goodness, this, this video is like Swiss cheese. His arguments are so full of holes. Uh, they may not, they may think, oh, wow, the Kalam really does suck. Oh, wow, the moral argument really is, it really is, these arguments are really aren't, really are no good. Um, and they may watch some of his other videos and they, if they're Christians, they may lose their faith. They may apostatize. You know, this is what I said, um, I, I tell people this a lot. We hear apologists say, "Oh, you know, your kid. If you don't train your kids up, if you don't give them, if 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 you don't teach them apologetics when they go off to college, they're going to lose their faith. They're going to come home atheists." Well, look, you don't even have to go off to college. I mean, just look at my story. My first exposure to arguments against Christianity were, was on Twitter when I was trying to share my faith with unbelievers. You can you can read my story in my book, The Case for the One True God. But also. YouTube is filled with anti-God, anti-Christianity videos, the blogosphere, social media. Your kids are going to be are going to be exposed to this in elementary school, in middle school, in high school. You don't even have to wait for them to go off to college before they uh, before they're before they can be talked out of their faith. And this is why I really really respect people like Jay Warner Wallace, Natasha Crane uh, of Mama Bear Apologetics um, for and and Lee Strobel for making these for making apologetic works that are oriented toward children. So you can show them there are good reasons to believe. And so and it's not just blind faith. It's not just because the Bible tells me so. And so when they are exposed to this stuff, they have they have a leg to stand on. Their their faith isn't going to crumble because all they have is, oh, the Bible tells me so. Just have faith. So that's that's another reason why I responded to this. If this guy was, uh, but I I would have done it anyway, just because I was I was asked. Not that I do everything that everyone asks me to do, but um, but given this guy's influence, and I mean he was even he was even on the Atheist Experience TV show. Given this guy's influence, I thought it was very important for me to respond to this. So thank you for listening. Again, if you are if you want to support this podcast, go to Patreon and the blog and Cerebral Faith as a whole. Go to patreon.com slash cerebral faith and give whatever you want to. I mean, there are several different tiers that you can join. Uh, different different amounts of money will give you will get you different rewards and, and see which ones that, that you want. Uh, what do you want to, to get in exchange for supporting my ministry? Uh, thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. God bless you, and I will see you next time.